Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 7. So let me read our passage to us before Phil comes to explain it. Romans 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law are at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known that what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the, sin, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. We know, what the, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law, 
but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thanks, Phil. Well, thanks, Josh. If you could have your Bibles open to you, we're going to be looking at that passage now. It's quite a complex passage, isn't it? But we've seen in the last couple of chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has been addressing this question. How does faith in the gospel of Christ lead to a changed life? Paul's taken us through um, questions that both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians in the Roman church in his time might have raised. Questions about the law and the gospel. And he's been taking us through a carefully structured argument. He's been explaining the mechanics of why we struggle with sin and why the law matters in this struggle with sin. And in our chapter this morning, the emphasis changes. Paul moves away from the explanation and opens his heart. He opens his heart to that daily reality of a Christian's struggle with sin. It's almost as if at the end of chapter 7, he sits the, Christian, the Christians in Rome down and he, he says to them, look guys, let me share with you my experience of battling with sin. Because being a Christian is hard and we're to walk in the grace of God each day and we fail, we will fail with this battle against sin. But you know what? We have a mighty saviour. And we need to hear this this morning because the battle is the same for us. We too are caught in a daily struggle with sin. And the question we often ask is, how do we manage in this battle? How do we fight this battle? How do we keep on fighting it? Where does the strength come from to keep on going? Well, this is what our passage addresses this morning. And the first thing that that Paul says is, understand your relationship with the law. Understand our new relationship with the law. So look at verse 1 to 3, because in those verses, what Paul does is he takes an illustration from common law and helps us understand the relationship we have now with the Old Testament law. Look at those verses with me. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. That means uh, the Jewish Christians amongst them. Do you not know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? So Paul starts off by saying the law only works in our lives whilst we live. And he goes on in verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So let's imagine this scenario for a second. Imagine Liz, my wife, decided to take advantage of the fact that I'm busy here preaching a sermon and decided to rush down to the registry office in Reigate thinking... I've got about 20 minutes to go. That gives me just enough time to go go through a marriage service with someone much nicer than me. Uh, She's not planning to do this, by the way, but let's pretend. Um, Obviously, it would be pointless because the new marriage would not count. The law would not be on her side. I could drop my notes here, dash down to the phony ceremony just in time to object to the registrar and ask the question, uh, uh, registrar, as he asks that question, does anyone here know of any reason why these two may not lawfully be wed? And I would stick up my hand and say, actually, I know a very good reason. She's married to me already. The ceremony would come to an end, the whole thing would be called off and a police car would roll roll up and handcuff the two. Good riddance, I say. But Paul's point is addressed to some of the legalistic people in the church who were accusing Christians of doing just that to the law. 
They were deserting the law for Christ. They, they, they were, they, the, the Christians were accusing, the, the Jewish Christians were accusing Paul of de- deserting the law for Christ. Christians were being accused of deserting the Old Testament heritage and committing a sort of spiritual adultery, turning now to Jesus instead, knowing full well that the law is there and written by the same loving God who saved them. But Paul says that isn't the way it is. It isn't what Christians are doing. Look at verse 3. So then if she marries another man, While her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So imagine a different context, a different couple who are coming in um, for for the next wedding after, you know, the debacle at Rygate Registry Office this morning. The the wife has had fond memories of a previous husband who's passed away. And, And a little tearfully, I guess, on the occasion of this, her remarriage, she walks down the aisle knowing that the law is on her side. Her, her deceased husband would not want her to be unhappy. He'd be pleased that she found a new husband. And the law legally marries her and a new husband. It's perfectly legal. And in the same way, Paul is saying, what has happened to Christians as we move from law to Christ is not spiritual adultery. Christians are not under the condemnation of the law because, of, because a death has taken place. And that death ends the contract with the law. And that death is the death of Jesus. And the key thrust of these first few verses of chapter 7 is verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who who, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So the old relationship that we had with the law died when Jesus took our death on the cross. What was that old relationship like? Well, before we were Christians, the law was a written code that condemned us for the sins that we committed against God. Each time we lied, there was the law, do not lie. It showed us that we were slaves to sin. The law showed us that we were absolutely controlled by the realm of sin and determined to break the law and by breaking the law we deserve the punishment of death and hell for our sin so this is what the law does before we're christians it creates fear fear of god Whether we acknowledge God or not, we're fearful that when he comes again, he will understand who we are and what we've done and we've broken his code and we fear the judgment that is to come. That's what the law does before we were Christians. Either that or it creates a self-righteousness. I'm better than that person. I'm considerably holier than that person. I'm better than that. It creates an arrogance. But as we've seen in the past couple of chapters of Romans... Because we've been united by our faith into Christ's death, we've now died to that condemnation. Now in Christ, we are united to his resurrection, which means we have a new relationship with the law, one we could never have before we were Christians. In Christ's resurrection, we have been raised with him and we use the law to help us please God in the way that we live our lives. That old attitude of fear or, 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 or self-righteousness is dead. 
So no wonder Paul rounds off this section with a great declaration of our freedom within the law. Look at verse 6. By now, but, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do you see that? What the law once was to us before we were Christians and to now, because of Christ's death and resurrection, what the law is now to us. So the law doesn't, so, so by dying to the law, it doesn't mean the law is irrelevant. Instead, the law is there to help God's saved people bear spiritual fruit. You see, by listening to the Lord, law, we're able to discern God's will for our everyday lives. So, so take, for example, what is often called the children's talk of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number five, which reads, honor your mother and father. And consider how it speaks to us today about honoring authority that God has given over us. And then consider how we apply it to the COVID rules that have come to dominate our lives. For example, should we as a church break the national law and meet together in person and defy the government? Well, the answer is commandment five, honor your mother and father. We apply God's law to our lives, and because the government is not asking us to defy God's word, nor is it asking us, or, 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 nor is the government persecuting us and telling we can't meet at all, well, we obey the government, which is God's authority over us, and we meet online instead, perfectly legally and within the freedom that we've been allowed. And the promise in verse 6, listen to that is that by obeying God's law, we know that we will grow in godliness and holiness by it. Even though the circumstance brought about by obeying our government seems like it's doing the opposite. The truth is the more we see God's law applying to our lives, our attitudes and our hearts and our minds, the more we will relish that great freedom that we have to live out the will of God daily. So Paul's first point is that Christians are, are, are released into a new relationship with the law through our union with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But out of this comes the second point uh, that follows on. You see, as well as understanding our new relationship with the law, we must also understand the role of the law. And that's the second point. Understand the role of the law. It might have been at this point of the letter, one of the Jewish converts begins to shake with frustration and anger and he cries out, hang on Paul, what you're implying is that the law is a bad thing if it shows us how sinful we are. That, that's the objection that we find at the beginning of verse 7. What, what shall we say then, says verse 7, is the law sinful? And Paul's reply is this, no, certainly not. But I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And he goes on to show in verse 7 to 12 that the law is good. Actually, it's so good that it exposes sin as totally and utterly sinful. So verse 12 tells us the law is holy and good and amazing. It reveals our spiritual dirt. And verse 13 finishes off the argument. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produces death in me. Through what was good, the law, so that the commandment, again the Old Testament law, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. 
The, the law, says Paul, acts like a, an ultraviolet light when you want to see so, whether something is clean or not. So let's pretend we're public health inspectors. If you're wanting to get a good idea of how clean a restaurant's kitchen is, you get your biohazard suit on and you look at the kitchen using ultraviolet light. And that light makes all the bacteria that hasn't been killed in the kitchen glow. And that's a good thing because it shows the owner of the restaurant where the dangerous stuff is that they need to sort out. And in the same way, the law acts like a spiritual ultraviolet light. So when we turn to Christ and see for the first time how utterly sinful we really are, the law kicks in to work, exposing our sin, and does a good work, showing us how we need to change now in order to follow Christ more. But that does leave us with a question, doesn't it? If the law is so good, and now it's our friend, how is it that we're still unable to keep the law perfectly, a hundred percentedly, if we're in Christ, why do we sin? Well, that leads to our third point this morning, which is fight the battle against sin. Fight the battle against sin. As we see how sinful sin really is, the battle between our sinful natures and our new selves begins to rage. And that's what we see in the rest of the chapter from verses 14 to 21. Now, let me be honest, these verses have sparked a massive debate amongst Christians. Some say they describe someone who is not a Christian, um, fighting with that desire to be a Christian and the desire to stay as they are. Others say it is about a Christian struggle with sin. And on balance, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with that understanding. I think this passage is talking about Christians. If you disagree, um, please feel free to carry on disagreeing. I really don't mind. I'm not going to split hairs over it. But from how I understand this passage, the rest of the chapter is Paul's personal story. He's very much saying, I, myself, all the way through, it's personal pronouns relating to him. And there's no other way he can speak. Because he's describing the daily experience of a Christian's struggle with sin. And it's still the same for us today. Let me skim, skim through the passage to show you what I mean. Look at verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Now, unspiritually literally means the body, who we are, people who are slaves to sin. Then verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do. He's confused by, what he, by, by the way he lives. He's puzzled by it. And he continues, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. In other words, there's a conflict between the way that I live and the way that I would like to live. There's a part of me agreeing with the law. That's the part of me that wants to be different. And yet that doesn't cross over into the way that I behave all the time. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do this but it is sin living in me. The reality of the Christian's life is that there are two sides to the Christian. There is I, myself, that wants to keep the law and wants to do good. And then there's our sinful nature. Sin living in me that keeps us doing what is wrong. And Paul says in verse 18, For I know that good itself 
does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So he's talking about that part of him that rejects God, that sinful nature, and, and, and his desire now is to be on the right track because he has a spiritual nature. But the reality is that the sinful nature is often stronger than the desire to do good. I feel helpless, says Paul. I can't do what I want, what I know I should be doing. I'm somebody who now wants to live the right way, who wants to do what is good, but there is still this old in me, this this old me in me, this sin dwelling in me that keeps me trapped and keeps me doing all the things that I don't want to do. Paul's caught. He can't escape it. And he goes on in verses 21 to 23 to describe how his inner being delights in God's law, whilst his sinful nature wages war against what he knows he should do. And he won't get away from it till he dies. So long as Paul continues to live, this new nature, this godly nature, will forever be frustrated by the sinful nature in him. And it's our daily experience, isn't it? And the chapter comes to a dramatic plea for relief from this war that rages between his new life in Christ and the sinful person that Paul is. So he cries out in verse 24, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. And that's the Christian cry in this world. I need a savior who will rescue me from this physical body of death. I'm sure we can all relate to that frustration. I'm sure every Christian feels like Paul feels in these verses, at least some of the time. But look at the glorious ending in verse 25. Because he's a Christian, he knows the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And just at the point where he feels defeated by sin, that still rages in his life, Paul looks up to the cross and back to the resurrection and is fully reminded that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who has come into the world to save us from our sin. And Jesus is the Lord of eternal life who guarantees us salvation. His perfect blood cancels out every sin and his perfect resurrected body gives us a concrete certainty that one day we will be like him. Sinlessly perfect. So if you're a Christian this morning, I promise you there will come a time when we are fed up with sin. Absolutely to the back teeth. Fed up with sin. What keeps us going? What keeps us looking up? What keeps us going on? Well, this is Paul's answer, the Bible's answer. We have a Savior who will not stop loving us, and he will not stop forgiving us, and saving us, and strengthening us till we are renewed. When sin gets to us, we look to the resurrected Lord and praise him for his death and his grace. When guilt threatens to overwhelm us, there is our precious Lord and Savior reminding us of the perfection that he has won us before God. Who saves us from this round robin of sin? It is Jesus. 
And it means that when we turn to Jesus to be our Lord and Savior for that first time, it's not as if we suddenly start to behave in a morally upright way and we have no more struggles with sin. No, the thing about being a Christian is that at that point that we become a Christian, that battle begins to rage. Why? Because we were once slaves to sin and now we are slaves to Christ. But the reality is our old self is not totally dead yet. It will only die when Christ returns. But our new life is alive alive in Christ, and suddenly this battle rages. And we sometimes get to this point, oh Lord Jesus Christ, save me from this battle. It is wearying, it is so, so, so destructive, and I don't know what to do. And that's where Paul gets to in this passage. What a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this round robin of sin, of sin, It's Jesus. And I love his honesty. He's honest, isn't he? This is not, this is not let go and let God. This is not kind of become a Christian and everything's groovy and funky. Old language I know, but just forgive me. This is reality. This is real reality. Being a Christian opens up a battle in our hearts. And to be truthful, it's, it's a hard battle because we so often like the path of least resistance. Which means that's so often following our sinful desires rather than Jesus. But Paul's saying keep at it. And, and the last, five, last two chapters, from chapter 5 through chapter 6 to this, the end of chapter 7, he's been saying keep at it for two reasons. Because firstly, rejoice in Jesus' death and resurrection. Because he has won a freedom from the slavery of sin. He saved us by his great love, by dying on the cross, and he saved us into an eternity of, of hope. So don't be disheartened by this war with sin. Jesus has saved us in eternity. That is not going to change if we truly declare him Lord and Savior. And be encouraged because Jesus has defeated the power of sin on the cross. We are no longer condemned by that sin. Our future freedom is in heaven. It is totally guaranteed by him. And we can have total and full and free confidence that we stand before God without condemnation and with great freedom, knowing that his grace fills us and his Holy Spirit lives in us, guaranteeing us eternal life. There we are. Rejoice in Jesus and his work. And the second thing that these last couple of chapters has said is look at the big picture. Look at the big picture. Because we are not fighting a defensive campaign. It's not as if we're in our, 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 our circle of wagons and, and the forces of hell and the, the devil are, are bearing in on us and it's a last desperate stand. That is not the case because Jesus has promised his church, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The reality is the devil is in his circle of wagons. The reality is sin is, is, is on the defensive and the church and God's glory is pressing in and the gates of hell are not prevailing against him. The devil is fighting a losing battle, a a different war. And the very existence of this chapter and the way it ends tells us that we have the means to fight sin effectively. How? We fight sin by following Jesus. 
I, I know that's really, 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 really simplistic. But think about that for just a second. We fight sin by following Jesus. In other words, we fight sin by doing the opposite of what our sin wants us to do. So, for example, if you are addicted to lust or porn, then fill your mind with that glorious verse in Revelation 22 that says we will see his face in eternity forever and ever. Rather than filling our minds with things that our sinful selves long to watch or look at, fill our minds with the future hope of the glory of the face of Christ that we will, we will, we will revel in in eternity. And rather than fill your time with, with, with wasteful um, time on, 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 on your computer, serve. Just take the time and volunteer. Serve the church. Come and do some gardening in the grounds. I'm sure uh, Pauline would welcome your help doing that. But you see, it, there, is, there is serving the church. There is, there is doing, uh, doing a practical thing that will take you away from, from, from wasteful use of time. If you're, if you're struggling with anger, well, follow Christ in that. Fill your words with kind comments. Compliment people. Be gracious to them. Follow Christ against anger. If you're, if you're struggling with social media insecurity, start Instagramming, start Snapchatting about Jesus. If you're struggling with greed, follow Christ who gave and gave and gave again. Look at your finances, look at your time, look at your energy, look at your effort. And if it, all, if it is all self-centered, follow Christ and give Look at everything and say, how much more can I give in these circumstances that I may deny my greed and follow Christ? We fight sin by doing the opposite of what our sin wants. Why? Because haven't we seen over the last few chapters that because of Christ, we have God the Holy Spirit in us and he gives us the power now to do that. Rejoice in Jesus and look at that big picture. The devil is defeated. Our Savior is victorious. And by the Spirit, every day, we are winning tiny, 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 tiny battles with our sin. And every day, the evidence of Christ's work in our life, however small it may seem, is there. And so let's encourage one another by telling each other where we're seeing the battles won in others' lives too, where we're seeing the growth in godliness of those around us, so that as a church family, we might grow together in holiness. So let's not give up. This fight against sin is, is hard. It's a battle. We know that. But Christ has won the war. Let's not give up. Let's fight. And when we feel defeated by sin, let's fight and fight and fight again. Let's rejoice in Christ's work to bring us into his family by God's grace and for his glory. We're going to sing a song now which just walks us through that glorious work that Christ has done. And there's a, there's a verse in it that says this, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. 
those are the two worlds we live in, isn't it? For in my need, his power is displayed. Let's stand together. Uh, in your homes, just sing this with great joy and great freedom, because we can, as the government said we can, um, and let's, um, let's belt it out for the glory of Christ, because it sings about our daily, daily walk with sin, holding our Savior's hand.